The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. Luke, this morning, the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at chapter 1. And when you have found Luke chapter 1, then also find Matthew chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at a couple other texts um, as we open up this morning on page 3 of your little brochure, uh, where we have the heading, The English Bible for an English-Speaking People. And uh, so we want to look at that subject this morning uh, in some detail. But in Luke chapter 1, uh, I notice in verse 31, we have these words. <clears throat> As the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary, and notice verse 31, <clears throat> And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name... Jesus. Now that is a significant verse of Scripture because the angel is naming this child prior to its conception. All right, so we have that. Now if you will look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Here the angel of the Lord is speaking to Joseph. The first reference in Luke is the angel's message to Mary. Here is the angel's message to Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, notice the Bible says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. So the angel is talking to Joseph, speaking of Mary, saying she will bring forth a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus. Notice this time, there is not a period after the name Jesus, but a colon. Look at the rest of the sentence. For he shall save his people from their sin. Now let's look, if you will, in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. I'm building on something here. I'm going to show you something. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished, this is now after the birth of Christ, the, the nine months when Mary was with child are over. She, Jesus is born. Uh, he's eight days old. They take him up to the... Uh, to the time of the temple. Notice <clears throat> when eight days were, or for circumcision, excuse me, when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called, there it is, Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Luke 19.10 says, the Son of Man is come to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. Now, with these verses, let's look at the name Jesus. In the Bible, many names have meanings. Jesus is a Hebrew name in its Greek form. The Hebrew name would be Yeshua or Jehoshua or even Joshua. It's, the name Jesus is given as Joshua in the book, of, uh, the book of Acts. What does the name mean? Based on the verses we've read, one of the verses gave the definition of the name Jesus. What is the definition? Anybody help me? Savior. He shall save his people. You see what the Word of God does? It gives us words and it defines them for us. And it is very important that we have a Bible that makes things plain to us. And it doesn't matter what language you speak, 
When you run across one of these verses, Matthew 1.21 tells you what this name Jesus means. He will save his people. He's the Savior. All right? And it's important that we understand that we have an English Bible that is reliable and accurate and dependable. It is not up for question because I want you to understand that the very first question in the Bible was a question that the devil asked. And he asked it to cast aspersion and to cast doubt on the Word of God. The Bible says that preaching should be done not to minister questions, but rather godly edifying which is in faith. I want to say this today. This whole thing about the Bible is a faith matter. It's not an academic matter. There are many smart people who don't believe the Bible. Believing Scripture and, and understanding the Bible is not an academic or scholastic pursuit only. There is an academic side. There's a scholastic side. The Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing what? The word of truth. But if you go at the Bible like you would go at a physics book, you're not going to get anything. One of the prayers that I pray every morning before I read the Bible is, Father, give me something beyond the unaided power of thought. Because I can think, but if my thinking has no help from God, I will get nothing. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. And my infirmity is that I'm finite and God is infinite. And I see, but the only way I'm going to get what the Bible really is all about is by faith. First, by faith of Jesus Christ as my Savior. Second, by faith in Him as I walk with Him, because we walk by faith, not by sight. So look, if you will, number one on this page here, as I said, page three of this little uh, folder, that uh, Pastor Kagan has done up for us. Number one, an ancient landmark of Baptists is the availability of the Bible in the language of the people. Now, I'll give you just a, a wee bit of history here. Way back in the 1500s, the nation of England was rising. The English kings, the conquests, the, the, uh, the, uh, the shift of power in Europe was moving toward England and it was moving toward an English language. Now, in the 1400s, the English language was very, very premature. It was very undeveloped. But in the 1500s, the English language developed as a very beautiful and effective and accurate means of communication. And by 1611, when the King James translators assembled to produce a Bible faithful to the original texts, the English language was absolutely at its peak. Today, the English language is very much in decline. We have what's called slanguage. We have all kinds of abreves. That's the abbreviation of, abbrevi of abbreviation. <laughs> we 
we have acronyms that if you are not familiar with the particular company, you have no idea what they are, you know. We have, you know, if, you know what do you do? Why well, I, I teach ESL. Okay, that's English as a second language. Okay, now I know that, I know what ESL, but you know what, if I don't know what ESL stands for, I still don't know what you do. And so it's important that if we are going to have God communicate with us, we must have a, language, a Bible in our language. But we must remember not to bring the Bible down to the level of culture. Because God isn't here to save culture. God is here to save souls and transform souls and by transforming souls to transform culture into his image. We are not ever helping ourselves or anybody else when we try to bring the glory of God down to a comfortable spot for other people. We are always hindering the work of God. So while it is important that we have a Bible in our language, we must not bring God down. Number two, for this reason, English-speaking people need a Bible in English. If I were to stand up here tonight, or this morning, or any time, and start reading out of a Spanish Bible, a number of things would be happening. Number one, I wouldn't know what I was reading. Number two, I probably would mispronounce most of the words. Number three, most of you wouldn't know what I'm reading. And even if you know Spanish, my pronunciation would be so bad, you wouldn't recognize what I'm saying. We need a Bible in the language we speak. And we should speak the language of the Bible. We should let the Bible set the tone for the way we speak, not the culture around us. Because the culture around us is absolutely running as fast as it can away from God. And if we start talking like them, and if we start thinking like them, we're going to be on our journey away from God. It has not helped the cause of Christ to multiply translation after translation after translation to the point that there is a Bible of the Month Club where you can order a new one every month and decide what somebody else thinks God might have said. So, a Bible in the language of the people, an English-speaking people need an English Bible. Number three, Scripture is one's speaking language. Scripture in one's speaking language prevents a clergy-laity division. Now, I can go back and tie this in with point number one. One of the things that Baptists have stood for and the Bible believers have stood for all the way back to the time of the Apostles is that there is no division between clergy and laity. I am not clergy. Okay, somebody said, are you a man of the cloth? My, my answer to that is, well, what do you wear? <laughs> now, I know what people are asking. They're asking about my profession. I am a minister. I'm a preacher of the Word of God. But it is important that I don't ever elevate myself above people in the pew, and it is very important that people in the pew do not demean themselves or think themselves somehow disconnected from the ability to read the Bible on their own. Because the moment we get to that, we become more Catholic than Baptist. 
or more Amish than Baptist, or more of some religion where it has been given to the people who speak to tell the people who listen. And there, here's what happens with this clergy-laity division. You people out there can't understand it, so come to us. And that's dangerous, because then those leaders can control. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is not control, there is liberty. And the Spirit's control is what you give to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's liberty is what you have in your faith. And it's very important. Number four, the insinuation that a person has to be familiar with the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and a tiny amount of Aramaic <clears throat> to understand fully the message of Scripture and it inadvertently creates a clergy-laity division. So if you have a pastor, which uh, you obviously do not, or he would not have me here to speak today, but if you had a pastor who has this idea that, well, the only way you can understand the Bible is for you to understand Greek and Hebrew. How many of you here understand Greek and Hebrew? Let me see your hands. Oh, you poor people. None of you can understand the Bible. You'll have to go to your pastor who has studied and labored and has a Ph.D. in Greek and a master's in Hebrew, and he can tell you what the Bible says. You see what happens when we devise this, this academic approach that the only way you can know what God says is to understand the original languages. What that does, it immediately creates a clergy-laity division that is absolutely unscriptural. It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that is mentioned in the book of Revelation twice, and both times God says, in parenthesis after it, which thing I hate. God is not in favor of separating clergy and laity. I am not a Lutheran, but I thank God there was a man named Martin Luther who nailed 95 theses to a Catholic church door in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, way back in the 1500s in the Dark Ages. And they were Dark Ages because the Word of God was kept in the hands of the clergy, and the laity was not allowed even to see it. That's the reason it was Dark Age, because this book is light. It's light. Walk in the light. How do you do that? By opening this book and finding out what it says. And so it's important that we understand. Now, I am not seeing a clock in here, brother. So when would you like... Oh, way back there. Oh, okay. All right, now I know. And what time should I stop? 10.15. One five. All right, we'll be done. Number five. Oh, I've already read that one. Let's go to number six. Every serious student of English scripture should possess an 1828 Webster Dictionary of the English language. And I see that right on the back of this flyer, uh, there is a notation where you can purchase one of them. Let me say this, it is not a cheap publication. It will cost you, but it'll be worth more than you pay for it about the second time you use it. It is a phenomenal volume, and I'll say this about it very quickly. <clears throat> if you would learn words, you would learn the Bible. Learning the meaning of words, and the Webster Dictionary from 1828 was, was made to preserve the meaning of the English words in the King James or Authorized Version. 
Mr. Webster himself, in the 1800s, saw the English language slipping. Already 200 years ago, Mr. Webster said there must be a dictionary compiled, and he went about the massive task of making an English dictionary. No computers, just handwriting and ancient, uh, old-fashioned ways of, of putting down type. And he created for us, he made for us the 1828 English Dictionary. And the definition examples often come right out of Bible verses. So you can not only learn the meaning of the word, but see exactly the way it's used in the Bible. That's very important for us. So it's, it's preserving the form of sound words. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I would, I would just call your attention, you need not turn there. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul tells Timothy, hold fast the form, F-O-R-M, the form of sound words. Now what is the form of a sound word? Well, the word form, if you, if you look that word up and, and look at it, it has to do with like what we would refer to as a concrete form. In other words, it's what hems something in and keeps it from spilling out. And so the idea, the form of the sound word is its definition. You know what, if you change the definition of a word, you change the message that that word conveys every time you use that word. You know, lost people talk about being saved, but they don't mean what we mean when, they talk, when we talk about being saved. Years ago, I was talking to a man in LaGrange, Indiana, and uh, he said something to me about uh, the fact that he had gotten saved. And I said, well, that's exciting. I said, I'm always excited to hear uh, the story of how somebody got saved. And I said, tell me about it. And he said, well, I was in this really bad job. And he said, boy, it was hard. And the boss was down my back all the time. And, and, and the people I worked with were just dragging me down. And, and he said, I got a new job and I really like it. And I said, and? and he said, well, that's how I got saved. Here in his mind, getting saved just meant getting saved out of a bad situation and finding himself in a better situation. He had no concept whatever of his sin, of his accountability to God, of the atonement, of the blood of Jesus Christ, he had no concept that there was a necessary repentance and faith. He didn't know a thing about what it means to be saved according to the Bible. You see, he had a different definition of the word saved. He wasn't holding fast the form. He didn't have the instruction. And one of the reasons that we need to know the language of our Bible, rather than adapt the language to what our culture is, we need to train ourselves to what the Bible actually says. And we need to do that by holding fast, that is not letting go of, the form, the actual definition of sound words. You know there's nothing wrong with the words of the authorized version. There is a whole lot wrong with our world today. There is a whole lot wrong with our culture today. There is a whole lot wrong with a an, with an whole motivation to change the Bible to make it palatable, acceptable, 
to our culture. In order to change the Bible to make it acceptable to our culture, there's a whole lot that has to be taken out of it. Because our culture doesn't like most of what the Bible says. All right, let's look at number uh, seven here. Every serious student of English scripture ought to possess a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Again, not a cheap volume, but one you will be very glad you have, and it will help you to understand and refer to English language as well as the Greek and Hebrew words behind what you're reading. And, and again, if you, if you uh, get a Strong's Concordance and you say, well, I don't know how to use this, I guarantee your pastor can show you how to use it, and you can go home and sit down with your Strong's Concordance, and you can refer to the original language if you like to do that, and you can understand the nuances and the, the different moods of the same word, because you know what? The English language is not, we'll, we'll cover this later, the English language is not a crippled language. The English language at its height was one of the most beautiful languages in all the world. And it still is if we let it speak the way God put it down. All right? Number eight, every serious student of English scripture ought to possess a reliable Bible encyclopedia. I recommend the Way of Life Bible Encyclopedia. I don't agree with every little thing that, that, the, that the editor uh, puts out, but I like this reference tool. It's about an inch and a half to two inches thick, and it covers just about any subject you can imagine. It's an encyclopedia. You can get it online, you can download it to your computer, and it's, it's just a phenomenal resource. And it'll help you with some of those things that are, okay, so what really is this all about? One of the things that I'm trying to emphasize here is that if you were studying medicine, just say you decide you're going to be a doctor, you're going to have some books that are about this thick. One of them is Gray's Anatomy. Who knows when Gray's Anatomy was originally published? It wasn't last week. Does anybody here know when Gray's Anatomy? I think it was the early 1800s. 18 what? 50 or 40? Yeah, it's, it's, it's before the Civil War. Now, why is that important to us? Because the person who does your heart surgery is studying from a very old book. You know why? Because that's when the English language was at its height. And that's the most accurate medical book available. Nobody has improved upon it. And nobody walks into a doctor's office today and says, and what book did you study to get your qualifications and your degrees? Well, I studied Gray's Anatomy. Well, that needs to be updated. That's old English. Nobody does that. Why do we do that with the Bible? Why should we do that with the Bible? Now, if you're going to study Gray's Anatomy, I'm going to tell you that there will not be a page of that book that isn't covered with words that you don't know the meaning of. And so along with Gray's Anatomy, you're going to need a good dictionary if you're going to be a good doctor. 
How many of you ever gone to the doctor and what he said, you know, he comes into the little room to tell you what's wrong with you and... How many of you have had that experience? And how many of you have said, <clears throat> translation please? Can you bring that down to my level where I understand what you just said? Am I going to live or die? Because I certainly don't know yet. Why do we accept that high, beautiful language and we ask that we be able to understand it. But when we have the high, beautiful language of the authorized version, we mock it as a culture. When we have a beautiful dictionary, we have study aids available, because you know what? The reason that doctor talks that way is he has studied. And that is a command in the Bible. It's not a suggestion. And study involves work. That dirty four-letter word. And study requires that we set aside the distractions and we, we put out all the, the stuff that is demanding our attention and we sit down with this precious volume, the Word of God. And we, first thing we do is pray and say, Father, you gave the Holy Spirit. And part of his job is to guide us into all truth. And I'm just human. So would you today guide me? You've written this down. You've given it to us in language, words that the Holy Ghost teacheth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So Lord, would you teach me today? Would you be my teacher? You're the author. So I'm asking you to be the teacher. Help me understand this passage. I have a preacher friend, he says, I always pray that the Lord will help me understand the passage that I'm reading. And he said, I'll invariably run across a verse that has been a puzzle to me before, and he said, I'll stop and say, Lord, what does this verse mean? What is this about? And he said, then I'll just be quiet and wait. He said, you know, if no, nothing comes, he said, okay, Lord, next year. When I read this next year, I'll ask you again. And I'm going to keep asking on the passages that I don't get. I read a verse this morning, and I read it over, and I said, Lord, what is this about? I don't, I don't get this. I get the verse before it. I get the verse after. What is this? I still don't know. But when the Lord wants me to know, I will know. And until then, I need to be content not to know. I don't need to cast doubt on the veracity and infallibility of the Bible because there's something I don't understand. I need to accept that God is the author of the Bible and his ways are above my ways and his thoughts are above my thoughts. And there are things he knows that I don't know and what I need to do, rather than try to bring God down to my level, is ask him to get me up to his level. And I have known preachers and non-preachers alike, men and women and teenagers and children and people that are in all the decades of life who have set aside 
a holy time every day of life to sit down and read the Bible. And I'll tell you what, God makes himself known to me through the pages of this book. And I have known other people who my wife often calls the five-minute Christian. They have five minutes every morning that they read a couple verses and, and a little devotional written by someone whose doctrinal position they don't even know. Two or three verses, no context, just, and then down at the bottom, a little, quote, life application. And the only exposure they have all day long is that five minutes, and those are the people that go to church and say, well, you know, we're going to go to another church. We're not being fed. Those are the people that go to a church and say, well, you know, I read the Bible, but I don't understand it. Those are the people that drop out. I tell preachers all around the country, they're the members, they're members of the largest family in the United States. It's not the Joneses or the Smiths. It's the Eustas. We used to go to church. We used to read the Bible. The Eustas live in every city and town in the country. You know one of the reasons they're Eustas? Because they gave this book five minutes a day and they're upset that you don't get it all. It's not going to happen. We need to be students of this book. The last point here, number nine, every serious student of English scripture can benefit from a little book called Things Hard to Be Understood. It's a handbook of biblical difficulties. And this book, this little booklet, explains what I call apparent contradictions of scripture. I will call your attention to just one of them quickly this morning. We're running low on time. We're actually out of time. Can I take a couple minutes and go? All right, 2 Kings chapter 24. Find 2 Kings 24. And when you have found that, also find 1 Chronicles 21. 2 Kings 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. And this passage, both of these, it's, it's, it's one, two different writers covering the same subject. It's the time that David numbered the children of Israel, and there was uh, going to be a judgment for that. Notice, if you will, in 2 Kings 24, 13. 2 Kings 24, 13. The prophet is asking David what he wants. Okay, I'm in the wrong. 2 Samuel 24, I'm sorry. 2 Samuel 24, 13. I read my own notes incorrectly here. <coughs> Excuse me. 2 Samuel 24, 13. Please forgive me for confusing you here. And I want you to be alert to the differences because they are explainable. Look at 2 Samuel 24, 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in the land? in thy land, or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee, or that they be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. Now keep that open, but look at 1 Chronicles 21. And it's the same 
conversation, but notice there's something different. See if you can pick out what's different. Verse 12 of 1 Chronicles 21, either three years famine or three months to be destroyed before thy foes while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. What is the apparent contradiction? Anybody has it? Raise your hand. Let me recognize you. Okay, that's, that's not exactly it, but okay. Because that, right here. Yes. Did you notice that in Samuel it says seven years of famine? But in Chronicles it says three years famine. Which is it? Is there a contradiction in the Bible, first of all? Yes or no? So what's the explanation? Which is it? The answer is found in your authorized version. Notice it's three years apostrophe famine in 1 Chronicles 21. What that means is a famine that is, that is, see, the apostrophe indicates possession. So this famine is possessed by three years. But because there was no rain for three years, the effect of the famine, that says in 2 Samuel, seven years of famine. So the effects of it lasted for four more years. There's no contradiction in the Bible. And when I read that years ago, I thought, what in the world? And when I got this handbook of biblical difficulties, things hard to be understood, I thought, I'm going to look that up. Duh, why didn't I see that? I'm glad I have that little helper, okay? All right, we're done. We're, we're past time, and uh, we'll pick up some more information on pages 4 and 5 in our morning worship time. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.